So uh, this morning is Sunday. It's November 28th, 2010. Our message this morning is called Stars, Sand, and Bread. Stars, Sand, and Bread. Uh, my hope is that our service will be tryptophan free. None of you will be dozing this morning from uh, gluttony and turkey. And if you had the desserts we had at our house, uh, all of those things. I want to go ahead and make a public confession. Uh, I ate the bread of idleness on Friday. I left my bedroom only once, and that was to go downstairs and wave goodbye to the children that were going on the camping trip. <laughs> and Jennifer actually brought a sheet cake upstairs and set it in bed beside me. <laughs> and I ate until I passed out. <laughs> So if you were feeling bad about yourselves, ladies, I hope that makes you feel better. <laughs> Guys, I hope that was not something that you aspire to, uh, but that is nevertheless the truth. Um, this morning, I think we will turn to Genesis 15 and start there. I want to confess up front, this is a more heartfelt message than a uh, precisely and technically prepared message. So get ready for spasmodic preaching, it's what I do best. Uh, Tell me when you're in 15.1. Amen, amen, and well done. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, or your footnote may say sovereign, and your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Isn't this an interesting thing? A man has received promises. In Genesis 12, Abraham was told that his name would be great. He's told that he would inherit land. He's told that every nation on the earth would be blessed through him. Those are pretty good promises, yes? Yes. That promise is reaffirmed in different ways. In the 14th chapter, it's reaffirmed. Or late in the 13th chapter, rather. And here we are, some years later, and what is Abraham? <coughs> He's struggling with fear. And what is his fear? His fear is that the promises God has said to him, specifically that he would have offspring so that he could inherit the land, offspring so that he could be a blessing to all of the nations, all of his promises centered around the birth of a special offspring. He's concerned that they're not happening. Now I know no one in here can relate to the idea of being given supernatural promises, but at times in your life, not seeing them happen. Right? No one in here has ever had that. Because when you got born again, you were born again in the name it and claim it movement. And you named it and claimed it in all of your unresurrected bodies right now. Divine health right now. Kings among the universe right now. No? no? So some of you struggle with the same things that I do. As the writer of Hebrews said, at the present we don't see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus lifted higher than the angels. Yeah. Abraham was struggling. The surrogate father to the Gentiles, the father of the faithful of all of the world is struggling. And what is he struggling with? Fear. In Abraham's fear, he began to look at something. He said, 
Lord, since you did not fulfill your promise, you didn't give me an offspring. It looks like Eleazar is going to have to inherit my estate. In your fear, are you tempted to look towards your abilities, towards your resources? The Lord didn't provide for me, so I have a visa card. The Lord didn't heal me, so I have a doctor. The Lord didn't do this, so I must do this. Fear always forces us to look towards our own arm. Fear always causes us to examine our own resources. The problem with fear is it is an enemy of faith because it causes us to look to our abilities rather than His abilities. How about Hebrews 11.6? Y'all can turn there. Keep your finger here in Genesis because that's where we're going to be for most of the morning. There. The rest of you there? Somebody read Hebrews 11.6 loud. And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. If you want to please God, you must have faith. And what were the two elements that were mentioned in that verse? You must believe that He exists, i.e. in your situation, and that He rewards those who promise Him. Look at the beginning of Genesis 15 again. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. By the way, the word came to him in a vision? Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think of word coming through your ears, not your eyes? In some kind of way, this word was so powerful that the Bible actually calls it a vision. I don't know whether a scroll popped up in front of his face or a speaker was standing there in front of his face. I don't know how it happened, but I'm telling you it got through more than just the ear gate. A powerfully impacting thing happens to Abram. A message comes from the third heaven. And of all the things that you could tell Abram, of all of the ways in which you could speak to Abram, isn't it interesting that it starts like this? Do not be afraid, Abram. The very first thing that God says to him in this vision, in this command, is you need to deal with your fear. Listen to what else he says. I am your shield. Or your text note in the NIV may say sovereign. It's the same idea either way. A shield in the feudal sense. The shield was the signature or the moniker of the king that you stood for. I am your king. I.e. your protector. What is your answer to fear? Number one, I'm in the service of the king. Do you never remember the story? that Bunyan wrote so long ago. Pilgrim was on that road. He faces the dragon. And he says, I am in the service of the king on his highway. Something inside you should resonate as you hear those words. Anybody that has ever had to deal with fear needs to first be able to place themselves in the position that says, the Lord is my sovereign. Therefore, he is my shield. In other words, you are his agent, his ambassador. To take you on is to take him on. What was the second part? Your very great reward. In other words, when dealing with fear, just like Hebrews 11.6, you must believe that he exists in your situation, that he is Lord of it, and that he will reward those who are seeking him. All of our struggling 
all of our fighting, whether it's with your emotions or with the demon that has manifested out of the pits of hell, revolve around a couple things. Do you know that you are in the service of the king and that he is your goal, he is your reward? If those two things are settled in your life, what difference does it make if you are struck dead? What difference does it make if you're tortured along the way? What difference does it make if you miss a meal, if you are in the service of the king and he is your goal, your inheritance, your reward? What difference does it make? Where is there a place for fear in that? Fear looks to our abilities, but faith looks to God's abilities. There were promises that were given to Abraham, and they were heavenly. And they required a faith that looked towards God's ability instead of a fear that looked towards Abraham's ability. Tell me that won't preach in your life. Tell me that you are not struggling in your situation to look at God's ability to carry out His promise instead of your inability to do it on your own. And how many times have you pierced yourself with many griefs by taking the matter into your own hands? How many times have we decided we would never verbalize it outside and in our Christianese we would never admit it to each other, but how many times has your faith failed and your own right arm taken over? I don't know whether you can call them carnal Christians. I, I mean, that, that in itself is kind of uh, something, two words that should never go together. But have you never heard somebody say, that'll make you lose your religion for a moment? Or, oh boy, when I was lost, I would have. Or I lost my faith for a minute. Right? You never think of it because they're usually bold macho stories, especially among guys. But what they're really saying is I was so overcome with fear that I acted as my own God. Wow. Why do you think that the people at the foot of Mount Sinai actually made their golden calves? It was fear motivated. What if Moses doesn't come back? I would submit to you that most sin is fear related. Say, no, Eric, when dealing with young men, it's definitely not fear related. It's other hormones related, but not fear. No, you're, you're wrong, friend. They're scared that they will never get what God has destined for them. When you examine your lives carefully, the bumper stickers that say no fear are a lie. And they always have been. The man of faith that is the example for every nation on earth, he is the one whom God began to reveal himself to as a friend and the ancestor of Jesus himself. Struggle with fear exactly the same way you do. And you know what God said to him? I'm your sovereign. And I'm your reward. And he expected that to be enough. If we could elaborate for the next hour and a half on those two verses, just because we could. Or you could take a moment just to think about, is he your sovereign in each and every situation? And is he your goal, inheritance, reward? That solves the fear question. Now practically, because God is merciful, that is not all they said to him. He let Abram complain. He let Abram illustrate the problem. I don't know what your prayer life is like, but I wouldn't tell you many times I sound much like Abram, much like Joshua. Joshua often complained to the Lord as well. One time God said, why are you whining to me? Go do what I told you to do. I don't have any problem talking with my father much like my children would talk to me. I tell him all about what is difficult. There is nothing wrong with having meetings with people that you love. 
and telling them exactly what is on your mind, however you can get it out. What is wrong with leaving your prayer meeting or your meeting with anybody that you're intimate with? It's not having resolved yourself to know that He is God in your situation and move in a way that shows He's going to reward you if you earnestly seek Him. This is what faith is. Faith is not ascension to a creed. Faith is what you do in those moments where fear is present. Come on now. Faith is what you do in those moments where fear is present. Trust is never tested if there is no fear present. Amen. Trust is never tested if there is no fear to be dealt with. And that way we can praise God for the fears that we have. They give a chance to test the genuineness of our faith. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Have you noticed that the problem was not with Abram in Abram's eyes? The problem was with what God had not done. We all fall into this category and we don't know why. We, we never sit there and say, you know, the problem with my life is that I zigged here when I should have zagged. The problem with my life is I have consistently given over to fear instead of faith. The problem with my life is I have been unfaithful to the Lord. And all of my pastoral counseling experience, which now expand, extends into almost two decades, I have never heard somebody admit that. Isn't that an amazing thing? Instead, I hear the same things. I tried and the Lord failed. Nobody says the Lord failed, but that's the situation we describe. And describe it over and over and over. One time at a church bonfire, somebody stood up and said, Though he slay me, yet will I love him. How ridiculous could that possibly be, though he slay you? Yes, God's in the killing you business. This is what the Gospels have taught you. The truth is, the person was boldly proclaiming something that was true. They were being slain, but it wasn't by God's hand. The way to life, the way to conquer fear, is to take responsibility for having it and then do what the Lord says to do with it. We're not in the name and claimant bunch that says no fear. We're not. Let's just be honest. Things that God tells you to do are frightening, are they not? Yes. yes. Leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place that I will show you. I want you to go in and whip everybody in this land. I know there's seven nations that are bigger and stronger than you and they all have giants, but do it. God calls you to do things that are scary. And if He didn't own you, He wouldn't expect you to do it. But since He purchased you with His blood, He expects you to do what He tells you to. Why do we love guys like David in the Bible? Because they did it even though they were scared. Yeah. Right? i got to tell you the truth. Cassidy was scared Wednesday night. But weren't you glad that she went through with what God told her to do? Yeah. Yes. Wasn't it a blessing? It I thought she was going to throw up right before she preached. <laughs> she may have. She ran off to the back. I didn't <laughs> My wife slipped up one evening and told me, Eric, I'm working on a song for the bonfire. I said, really? A song for the bonfire? Can I hear it? She goes, well, it's not ready yet. I don't know how to make all the chords. I said, good, let's do it tomorrow morning. <laughs> ah, I can't. Wasn't it a blessing when she did that? <laughs> Wasn't it a blessing? Yes. yes. 
Met with a couple just the other day. Her tendency is to kind of camp. His tendency is to kind of push. I wonder why God put those two people together. <laughs> In the gospel, it will require you to overcome fear. If you have ever seen men that you thought were fearless, that was a lie. They were just so full of faith that it comforted the fear that every human being has. Amen. Some say, oh, well, it's just easy for them. Oh, wouldn't that be nice if God made a group of people that was just easy for them? <laughs> Let's just be honest, though. You are going to be full of faith or you're going to be full of fear, one or the other. That's a good choice, isn't it? Faithful or fearful, right? Truthfully, they're both going to exist in you to some degree, but which is going to win? Mm. This next uh, verse really is what is the stars portion of our message. I want to submit to you that stars are always heavenly. Always. That's where they abide. In the heavens. Stars are heavenly. Look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. In response to Abraham's complaint, what did God do? Send him more word. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Don't be surprised when you're meeting with some man of God somewhere and you are complaining and all they do is give you more word. That's all you need. You need enough word in you to begin to focus upon his ability and not upon your inability. This is what we need. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. What is the first thing that the Word tells him? Same thing it tells you. Hear me. Let's make sure we don't miss this in some Hebrew translation. You're wrong. <laughs> this man, what you just said, Abram, that this man will be your heir, you are wrong. Yeah. The Word of God will confront you in every area of your life that you are wrong. And that is a heavenly principle. Why is it a heavenly principle? <coughs> because you are not being directed anywhere other than from the heavens, from the Word that comes from there. When the Word of God comes through, a woman called it in worship today, Rhema. This is the way that the Bible speaks when it ceases to simply be letters and sounds on a page and starts to become a reality that fills your whole spirit. That would be Rhema. When the Rhema comes to you, the first thing it shows you your resources, your ability, your assumptions, they're wrong. Let me tell you how it will be. This is how you know that He is your sovereign and the goal and inheritance which you are after. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Now, if you're like me, if you look at that verse, without breaking this down into the imp little detail, just looking at the verse, when there was a problem, what happened? The Word showed up. And what did the Word say? A son from your own body is coming. Do you not have a certain John 1-1 cry in you waiting to be released when you hear this Word? Don't you have a certain anticipation that you know there is something just beyond the words on the page about a word showing up and being a son from his own body? Doesn't this cry out in your spirit something heavenly is going to happen? Especially with the cross in the rearview mirror and the incarnation in the rearview mirror. You know that there is something more to this than just an offspring is coming to Abraham. There is something about a supernatural word of God. Mary was pregnant with something. 
She was pregnant with the promise that was the word of God. That was the substance of the man, Jesus. And it's foreshadowed here in Genesis 15. Then the word of the Lord came. A son will come from your own body. Isn't it interesting that God did not send that son, neither to Abraham nor to Israel, till they came to a place in their life where they said, I am not capable of producing it by myself. Isn't that exactly how you got saved? Didn't you get saved if in fact you are saved? I mean, I, I hope most of you are saved. Didn't you come to a place where you realized that all of your own efforts we're not achieving for you the shalom that God intended for you. And you said, I can't do it. I can't get down into the pool of shalom unless somebody helps me. And Jesus grabbed you yes. and said, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Isn't this our story? Yes. See, Abraham's story is the father of us all because it is our story as well. First and foremost, he's the father of the Jewish people, but he's your surrogate daddy too. He teaches you to walk just like he teaches his natural descendants to walk. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up. <laughs> I could stop right here and preach the rest of the message on this. When Abraham was looking down towards earthly solutions, when he was looking at what his hands couldn't do and what he would have to resort to to bring about a heavenly promise. With the premise in Genesis 12 about being a blessing to the nations, the father of the nations, everybody who blesses him will be blessed and everybody who curses him will be cursed, and the royal land grant that ensued, and all of those beautiful promises, did they originate on the earth? Where did they originate from? Who gave those promises? The heavens. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for earthly solutions to heavenly promises? He began looking for a way on earth to fulfill what came to him from the heavens, and God corrected it. Man, most problems in your life can be corrected by using your neck. Boy, think on that one for a minute. Most problems in your life can be addressed by using your neck, developing the ayem tovah, look at things as God looks at them. Develop the good eye. When Abraham was looking at earthly solutions for heavenly promises, God said, walk out your tent door and look up. The promise came from heaven, so where do you think the fulfillment will come from? So was your salvation, saints, was it born of an earthly thing that you need to look here it is or there it is? Or was it born of a heavenly thing that you simply need to look up for? Come on, if you're willing, that'll preach to your very spirit. This is a man who strives very hard standing in front of you. I strive for things I'm wrong about. I strive for things I'm right about. I am built to work hard. And sometimes that is the biggest problem in my life. There are some things that cannot be worked for, that cannot be earned, that cannot be fought to achieve. Sometimes they can only be received from a dependence upon the stars. The God who is enthroned above them gave them <coughs> signs as to the seasons in your life. 
And one of the seasons every man must walk through is this cannot be achieved by my own effort. It does not depend upon me. It has little to do with me. It has everything to do with him. And I need to not get in the way. If you're honest, that's probably the longest season in your life. He says, get out. Look up. Look at the stars. In the instance that Abraham was standing, the word of the Lord came to him, but it also came at the incarnation. In the instance that the Lord said to Abraham, a son from your own body, in the instance he said it to him, that was true. But it was also true at the incarnation. In the instance that he told him to look up at the stars, that was true and needed to happen. But it was also true at the incarnation. Nobody has been into heaven except the one who came from heaven. He has come to make the Father known. This story, this Genesis 15, verse 4 and verse 5, is all of the gospel if you're willing to see it. So much for the Older Testament being a book of blood and legalism, huh? Abraham believed... I'm sorry, I keep reading it wrong. I'm calling it as if he's received all of the promises and I have forgotten he hasn't even received them all. His name is still Abram. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The idea that you could not earn something, that it must be credited to you based on trusting, conquering fear in favor of trust, that idea is not a Newer Testament idea. In fact, it predates the Mosaic Law by more than 400 years. And what is so clearly expressed here has been the way of salvation since Adam, the very first man. Nobody has ever been able to earn the heavenly by the strength of their right arm. The best they could do was surmise some miserable substitution like Eleazar might be the best we could do. Or maybe in the next chapter, Hagar is the best we can do. Let's see if we can produce an Ishmael and get the blessing that way. Did you know that Ishmael had 12 sons just like Jacob did? Did you know that? Yes. Anybody in here who is in political science or that at least reads the newspaper can see what a monumental mistake that was. Some things can only come about through a dependence upon God's ability. This is the message of salvation that is credited to you. Does this mean that you do nothing then? I don't think so. He also said to him, I am the Lord. Now come on, Hebrew scholars. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What is this word? I am Yahweh. It's Yahweh. So what, how would this read? I am the I am. When God is assigning His divine identity in Genesis 15, when He's expressing His very character, He quite literally says, I am the I am who brought you out. Now, let me just fast forward 400 years. Who did He say I am that I am to? And when He revealed His identity to Moses in that way as the covenant God, what did He tell Moses to go and do? Bring them out! Our God has been the God who is bringing humanity out long before Israel was ever captive to Egypt. He was bringing Abraham out as well. 
And before that, he was bringing Adam out of the mess he created as well. When you get to know our king, the way that you get to know him is the one who is bringing you out. Hebrews 11.6 Anyone who wants to please God without faith, it's impossible to please him. Anyone who wants to please him must believe that he exists and that he earnestly rewards those who seek him. In which direction is he moving? Out of whatever you're in. Come on, this is the gospel, saints. It's the gospel without having the four gospels. Isn't that interesting? The four gospels are elaborating on this principle. You remember when Moses and Elijah showed up on a mountain in Israel and began discussing something with Jesus in the view of the inner circle? What were they discussing? The Exodus. Because of all of mankind, this is the issue. Now what happens when you're in bondage, but it's not in a land defined by borders? The Red Sea is not on one side. Ethiopia is not on another. The ocean, not on another. What if the land that you're in bondage to is fear that has conquered your faith? Is still the God who <coughs> brings you out. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. He does not bring you out from where you are simply so that you will be a restless wanderer. He does not bring you out from where you are to punish you. These are all worldly views of Christianity. Those people can't have any fun. Those people are sticks in the mud. Those people are all about what you cannot do. Our king draws you out of something to draw you in to something. You're in transition from fear to faith. You're in transition from the worldly to the heavenly. You are in transition from your kingdom to His kingdom. And the faster we recognize that, the easier our transition becomes. You may even walk around this place, hear these words, like an alien and a stranger seeking a city whose architect and builder is God. This world will not be worthy of you. These are the things that the ancients were commended for. Let me ask you, when you walk out of here and you face your next problem, have we said enough that the very first step is realizing God exists in it? He's your sovereign, your shield, your reward in it. Have we said enough that He rewards those who seek Him? That He's the goal of their life? He is their inheritance? He's the thing they're aiming at? If those things are true, where is the place for fear? Your calling came from the stars. Look up. If anything is excellent, if anything is praiseworthy, think on such things. Come on, saints. Nowhere in the Bible are you told to get down in the pit and mully grub, to throw pity parties for each other and whine about your infirmities. Nowhere are you told to sit in your houses depressed and depressing everyone around you. Nowhere are you told to walk around sucking the life out of every room you walk into. Nowhere are you told to do these things. That is walking in fear and not in faith. To the extent that I try even to train my children, but it extends all the way up to me as well. To quit saying I can't, and I'm scared, and I'm afraid. We all acknowledge those are parts of life. But it better be the smallest part of our lives. Why? Because God exists in my situation, and fear is an affront to His presence. Because God rewards the direction of my life, and fear is an affront to that promise. 
what can you replace it with? Trust. My knees are shaking, but I trust Him. I'm unsure of my direction, but I'm trusting Him because I'm aiming at Him. This is how you get credited with right standing before Him, even if you're standing in the wrong place. Hmm. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Can, doesn't this have a certain kind of irony to it? After singing for a couple thousand years now, Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them. After reading Romans 4 and seeing that he's the father of all who believe and that we all inherit the earth through him, doesn't it have a certain kind of irony to it that the great man of faith hears these things and then what is his response to them? How can I know for sure? Are you tempted to thank Yali? What was he just not listening? Are you tempted to be upset with him or look down and think he doesn't have much faith? That would be awkward, huh? The father of the faithful doesn't have much faith. Maybe he was a man exactly like you. And even when hearing the word of the Lord and intellectually knowing it is true, saying, how can I know it is true for me? Come on, ladies. Have you never read that you have value far beyond precious stones? Has the word never described you as beautiful? You have trouble seeing it. Come on, guys. If the word says you are competent, that he has made you competent, do you struggle with feelings of incompetency? How can I know for sure? How can I know for certain? In other words, I know a little bit, but how can, how can I trust this thing that I cannot see, the substance of something hoped for, as if it were reality right in front of me? Isn't that the great question of all time? I want you to hear the Lord's answer. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will take possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. If I began teaching on these sacrifices, I don't think that we could finish this message. Let me tell you that these sacrifices, just in general, are all of the animals that the book of Leviticus describes and the Mosaic sacrificial system. All of them. So in one way, you might say that this example is like encompassing the very perfect sacrifice. It's not a partial picture of a sacrifice. It's not a facet of the sacrifice. It is what all the sacrifices were aimed at. It is the perfect sacrifice in a manner of speaking. Could y'all stretch with me that far? Mm -hmm. Abram brought all these to him, cut them into two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Has God ever been trying to answer a question for you? Maybe your most heartfelt concern. Maybe something you're saying, look, Lord, I believe you, but how, how can I know in a way that causes me to live this? And as you're doing what he tells you to do, things descend upon you. Dark clouds come in. How many of you set out to do something for the Lord, like a prayer meeting in your home, or witness to your neighbors or something, and as soon as you did, your whole household got sick? 
<laughs> yeah, I know. I held an axe meeting to teach you advanced combat training. Two months later, everybody who started was sick, you know? It's almost like we're dealing with supernatural powers. <laughs> As if our battle is not against our ornery neighbor, but the puppet master that is above him. Isn't it? Yeah. It's almost like that. <coughs> yeah. When God began to arrange the sacrifice, actually used Abraham to do it, something descended upon him to try to stop it from happening. Probably had a canopy of darkness around it. Birds he didn't cut in half. I don't want to teach on that, but those birds represent you. They represent your spirit and God's spirit, and we'll teach on that another day. But Abraham drove them away. Your responsibility in dealing with all of your fear is to drive it away. You may not be able to fix the circumstances. You cannot fix your lack of ability. You cannot fix your lack of resources. You can fix your thoughts. Mm -hmm. You have a responsibility to take every thought that you have, examine it against your knowledge of Jesus, and make it obedient to your knowledge of Jesus. You may not be able to jump on Cody and whip him. Probably most of you can. But you may not be able to. You are capable of controlling your own thoughts. And anybody that says otherwise is completely defeated in their faith already. You need to come see me so you can get delivered. Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. you got to love this after Thanksgiving. You came together for a time of family bonding. You came together for a thankful spirit of unity. And what happened after you cooked and ate? You went to go watch the Dallas Cowboys get destroyed and fell asleep on the couch. Isn't this a familiar Thanksgiving story? Every little detail of it? Yeah. The Cowboys part. <laughs> the question that was being asked and that God was responding to is, how can I know for sure? Come on, Louisiana, can you not say for show? Yeah. How can I know for sure? God said, look, go get me all of the animals that are eventually going to comprise the sacrificial system. Cut them in half and go to sleep. Your responsibility is going to be to arrange the pieces. That's going to be your responsibility. I will perform the sacrifice. Watch this. Fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain. Wasn't enough to know it. Know it for sure. That your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. That sounds like a horrible promise, doesn't it? <laughs> Except your concern is that you're not going to have descendants. He's going to have enough descendants that they're going to be called a country and a threat to the largest superpower on the planet at the time. Isn't that interesting? But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out. In fact, the whole story is a Bible story where the Lord is bringing people out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, 
A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kenizzites, the Catamonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. When he wanted to know for sure what was his responsibility, from humanity would come a sacrifice. But it would be God who passed through the pieces and held the oath binding. In this day, when you wanted to make a promise, much like two little kids who are making a blood buddy promise, it would require halves to be cut in half. The two people that were making the promise to walk back and forth between the halves and a figure eight saying this is an unending symbol of what will happen to me if I fail to keep my part of this covenant. What was Abraham doing? Sleeping. While God was walking back and forth through those pieces. There is a limit to human striving. There is a limit to what you can achieve. And when Abraham wanted to know for sure how heavenly promises would happen, God said, go to sleep and I will fulfill them. How do you know that your heavenly promises, that your stars are worth looking up to? God has taken the responsibility for your calling coming about on His shoulders. He said in Psalm 138, verse 8, He would perform His calling in your life. So what responsibility do you have then, I ask? You have to drive away the darkness that tries to descend upon you in fear and steal the heavenly promise. Let me ask you, what did Mary do to get pregnant? In the end, what did she actually do to get pregnant? She just believed the work that was given her. She fought off the fear of what would happen to her if. And she said, okay, Lord, may it be as you have said. Are you positioning your life for that kind of blessing? Or is fear positioning you to protect to fight, to strive, to make sure that God's will happens through your effort. What was this message called? Stars, sand, and bread. We better move on to sand and bread. <laughs> Go to Genesis 22. The heavenly promise. When Abram was looking for an earthly solution. When he was thinking about Eleazar of Damascus, what did God say? Look up to the stars. Then in the next chapter, Abram, God bless him, seems to have forgotten the lesson, and he picked a hag for a wife and produced a wild donkey of a man as offspring that has been a thorn in Israel's side to this very day, and yet, in the end, will still be blessed by God because he takes even your mistakes and makes them work for the benefit of his plan. Now we are in Genesis 22, and starting in the second verse. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. This was the one for whom the supernatural promise of God was manifested in his life. When he showed up in his mommy's belly, it was as if the word of God had become incarnate, except it was not like Jesus. He actually came from a mama and a daddy based on the promise of God. Whereas Jesus came about by the powerful word of his father and no earthly father participated. But nevertheless, in this day, Isaac is the closest thing you've ever seen 
to the walking promise of God. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is the first time this Hebrew word appears in the Bible. Oh, to love or have great affection for. Very first time it ever shows up. Abram loved the fulfilled promise of God in his life. Don't you love when God fulfills the promise in your life? Now, ultimately, you've heard this talk many times and you understand very much that this is a shadow and type, that Abraham is the righteous father who gives his son, even as our Heavenly Father gave a son for the world. You understand that already. So it's not necessary that I preach it. But at the end of this chapter, we see the introduction of a phrase that has not occurred prior to this. It's the 17th verse. I will surely bless you and make your descendants descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. In Genesis 15, Abram simply went to sleep while God's work came about. But in Genesis 22, something was required of him. He had to be willing to give up that which he loved. There was an earthly component to the heavenly promise. One school of theology says it's all heavenly. It's all heavenly, friend. There's nothing that you can do. It is all heavenly. Sit back and receive. Let me slap some greasy grace upon you. It is all you uh, receiving, all you receiving, all you receiving. In fact, don't go witness to your neighbors because it could be false hope. Just sit and be a frozen chosen. Another school of theology goes the other way. It says it's not all stars, friend. It's all sand. It's all how hard you work. It's all what you do. It's all your great effort. The truth is, the heavenly promise has both stars and sand in it. It has both things that can only be received from heaven and things that can only be done by men. Who did God use to arrange the pieces of the sacrifice in Genesis 15? Abram. But who is the only one that could keep that promise and walk through it? God. Was it man or God that drew Jesus to that cross? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? It's man who hammered the nails. It's men who hung him up there. It's men who arranged the pieces, but it was only God's will that performed that sacrifice. There is both a star's component and a sand component to the faith. From here on out, you see things in the Scripture. Like in Genesis 32. We're not going to turn there. It's the second mention of sand in the Scripture. Jacob is all excited. He's gone off to Padan Aram. He left crossing the Jordan with a staff in his hand and he's come back to giant groups of people. But he has a little problem of his own making. A problem named Esau. Somebody tricked out of a blessing. So when he's describing his prayer to the Lord, he says, Lord, you're the one that appeared to my daddy and my daddy's daddy and you told them our descendants would be like the sand on the seashore. Then he was moved to take some of what he had and give it to his brother Esau to make peace. Some things are born solely out of the heavens. They're starry promises. Some things involve the sand on the earth that require you to take of what God has given you and do something with it. But let me ask you, where do you think fear plays the biggest part? And that you'll never receive something from heaven or that you must do more sand? 
we're sandlot people. If you're getting lost in the metaphor, I'm sorry. It's the best I've got. In fact, maybe the best example of this and all of the word would come from Exodus 2. Maybe this will help you make sense of it. Exodus 2, starting in verse 11. Has God already said, has God already said that it would be 400 years and then Israel would be brought out of Egypt? Yes, he's already said this. The same God that promised offspring, promised those offspring would be enslaved and that they would be delivered because he is the Lord who brings them out. So is that a heavenly promise? Yes, absolutely depends upon the Lord. Might he need somebody to arrange the pieces or raise up somebody to arrange the pieces? Yes. Heavenly promises always have earthly components. Which do you think is more important, sand or stars? That's a great question. They're both needed. But the order of shalom dictates that what comes from heaven manifests on earth, not what is on earth manifesting in heaven. This is where Christians begin to get this wrong. Instead of Him being Lord in this situation, instead of Him being the goal of everything and using that to war against fear, we begin to decide in our situation what we would like God to be. We would like our goal to be His God and we try to push sand into the stars. Watch this. One day after Moses had grown up, I assume we're talking about physically, he went out to where his own people were. What do you mean, you people? and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Is that difficult? When you identify with someone, is it difficult to watch them abuse? You more inclined to jump out there and try to rescue somebody that you have some sense of identification with? Yeah. Of course. Of course. Glancing this way, and that way, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. In the situation... That Moses sees two people who are of his own race fighting. What was Moses born to do? What was his heavenly calling? Deliverance. Deliverance. But fear takes hold. And instead of standing there and saying, You are my protector, my shield, you are God in this situation. A God who might allow it to happen, or a God who might want me to intervene. And instead of God being the end goal, the reward, Moses did something. Fear caused him to look at his own ability instead of God's ability. He decided God wasn't doing anything, and so he must do something. You know, when Christians do something wrong, when we do something really good and wrong, like maybe blow up a whole church, right, through your bad behavior. Maybe blow up a whole family gathering through your bad behavior. Maybe really damage somebody. We hide it in the sand. How do we hide it in the sand? Oh, I was just doing something for the Lord. 
It was the Lord who called me to do thus and so. It was the Lord who said do this. Could Moses stand and say, I was killing this Egyptian because the Lord called me to deliver them? Sure. It's just covering things over with sand. See, there's an earthly component to our promises, so I had to take this into my own hands. The problem is, the heavenly component comes first. The direction comes from the stars, not the sand. You are a union of the dust of the earth and the breath of of God. You are both heavenly and earthly, a truly spiritual being, but who must be in charge? God. Moses gets to go away for 40 years and learn his dependence upon the Lord. And what is the very first thing he begins talking to God about? I can't. I can't. I can't. He learned about his inability so that he could trust in God's ability. There's a battle that goes on in the promises of God and living them out. Fear gets involved. And he confuses stars and sand. Both are necessary, but in their right order. Whenever a man of God, whenever a woman of God does something that they know is wrong, they look this way and look that way. And see, no one, they begin to cover it up with churchy language and talk. How many people do you know that just flat out now sand and blue worse than day and then just said, oh, well, it's what the Lord was leading. And he happened to have changed his mind. Are you kidding me? God plans things out four centuries in advance. You really think he's changed his mind like a windshield wiper in your life? The Lord has called us here to march in this abortion rally. It's raining. He's changed his mind. There's a big man with a stick. He's changed his mind. Somebody's there with fire hoses. He's changed his mind. This is sad. It's saying, does the Lord need people to do things? Well, they raise them up to do it. There's an earthly component that arranges pieces. But our job mostly in the earthly component is to fight off heavenly forces that are not God. Amen. Not to do things in your own strength. What is the earthly component to the heavenly promises? It's what Paul said. It's to realize that your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities. What is the earthly component to the heavenly promises? It is a trust-grounded obedience that recognizes in every situation He's God. He's my goal. All I have to do here is what He tells me to do, and I don't have to do anything that He doesn't tell me to do. Come on, for some of you it's a problem to do what He says to do. For others of you it's a problem to realize you don't have to do it if He didn't say to do it. A young man came to my door selling magazines yesterday. He was in pitiful shape. Pitiful shape. And before he knew I was a pastor, right, he wants to sell me the magazine. So he's fishing. He's fishing with what might catch most people. He said, we even sell Playboys. I said, that's very good. I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh, bless you. I'm a, I, I'm a Christian too. How about that? The truth is, though, I felt bad for him. Because I could imagine how many doors he'd have gone to and knocked on and it got slammed in his face. Just like the poor telemarketer that you hang up on over and over and over. Thank God for the cell phones that just block calls now. Right? I've been both of those guys. I've gone door to door and I've called people on the phone, so I have a certain level of empathy for it. So I'm trying to find any way possible to let this young man sell me something, right? And then it hits me in the middle. I don't have to do this. The Lord's not told me to. And the resources He's given me are precious. 
And it may feel good and well to be moved by compassion, but what if it's not what the Lord wants in this young man's life? So in the middle of a sales pitch, I said, you've done a fine job. Thank you very much. I'm going to release you to go on to the next guy because I'm not going to buy it. I felt like a jerk. And I felt like an obedient child. Right? Never mind the fact that the magazines were 70 bucks and you can buy them in the store for about two. <laughs> My point here is everything has a star component and has a sand component. And in the right order, it all builds the promise of God. When we get things wrong and we cover it over with sand and say, this is what the Lord wanted me to do, it delays the work of God. Yeah. I have a third part to the message, and I only have a few minutes. So I'm going to give it to you in concept only. We all just experienced a time where we ate lots of things. I hope to God you didn't eat as much as I did. But would you... Would you, at this point, agree with the statement that what you eat can determine how you feel? Yes. I mean, if you drink lots of espresso, does that affect your day? Yes. <laughs> yeah. If you do nothing but eat turkey and chocolate cake all day long, seven, eight, 10, 11 hours, whatever it is, <laughs> might that affect several days? Yeah. <laughs> Some of you are still recovering, huh? Yeah. A few of you might be tempted to unbutton your top button under that shirt somewhere. Huh? The Bible describes things that you eat. The very first thing that it describes that you eat, these are all breads, right? God likes bread. He was never on the Atkins diet. <laughs> it's the bread of his presence. Cassidy alluded to this in her message. You can find the bread of his presence in Exodus 25, 30, 35, 13, 39, 36, and on and on and on and on. And it's the same thing. The bread of his presence is the Hebrew phrase, ponim. And it means to be edified from looking into the face of God. Kind of like looking out your tent, staring up at the stars, his promises, and letting that fill your heart instead of fear. This would determine how you feel. But it's not the only kind of thing that can be eaten in the Bible called bread. Deuteronomy 16.3 calls something the bread of affliction. You can eat it. You can be edified by it. It's the difference between going to Whole Foods or going to Taco Bell. One makes you feel good. The other takes years off your life. <laughs> Psalm 80 verse 5 calls something the bread of tears. Well, you can meet people that are doing nothing but munching down the bread of tears. Their whole life is defined by it. You're scared to death to ask them, how are you doing? You don't have enough time for them to tell you just how bad they're doing. Proverbs 4.17 mentions the bread of wickedness. Some people eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. They feast on it and are edified by it like somebody's getting a B12 shot. It's just in the wrong way. Proverbs 31, 27 mentions the bread of idleness. I bet on that one Friday. There's a certain kind of edification that comes from doing nothing at all. Isaiah 30, verse 20 mentions the bread of adversity. Hosea 9, 4 mentions 
the bread of mourners. I want to submit to you that affliction, tears, idleness, adversity, mourning, they can all be things that you eat. But if they define your diet, it's going to shape your life. What you're eating will shape your life. You cannot eat fear. You cannot eat pity. You cannot eat wickedness all of the time and expect to see the stars in their correct perspective and handle the sand in its correct perspective. It will all become distorted. What a man eats affects his whole life. This is why Jesus tells us in John 6, 33, 35 and 48. I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. I am the bread of life. When we want to know how to carry out our heavenly calling with its earthly components, when we want to know how stars and sand work together, the answer is eat the right bread. Jesus shows us how to merge the divine and the earthly in one human package. He shows us how to rightly handle the promises of God in adversity, in mourning, surrounded by wickedness, surrounded by tears, surrounded by all of those things. And what we eat makes a difference. I think that the body of Christ is weak and emaciated most of the time because it is not eating the bread of life, not enjoying the bread of His presence. And when you do, you can read a verse like Genesis 15.4 see the entire story of God in a single verse because His presence is there. When you don't, nothing that you see is anything but sand all around you. Saints, I beg you to do what Matthew 6.11 says. Ask Jesus for your daily bread. Yeah. Ask Him for the bread that is His Word that comes out of His presence. Let Him give you the right perspective. Let Him show up and say, You've just said Eleazar, and I'm saying no, it'll be Isaac. You have just said Hagar, and I'm saying no, it will definitely be Sarah. You have just said that you will not go in, and I'm saying you must go in. Let him direct your life. In other words, believe that he's God in your situation, and that he will reward you if you seek him. I'm giving you the same instruction that God has been giving His people since He established the family of the faith. He is your sovereign. He is your very great reward. Act like it. Yeah. Everything will take care of itself. John Dang will preach Wednesday. He has a message on diamonds. It is an amazing message that he shared with me and I thought not to preach today. Monday night, we'll be in Ephesians 5. Yeah. That will be an amazing time, I promise. Every day, get your daily bread. As you get your daily bread, the stars that are always heavenly, the earth that is always sandy, or the sand that is always earthly, is put in proper perspective by the bread that can be either one. Jesus is the perfect merging of stars and sand. Stand to your feet. At 3 o'clock, if you would like to help Jorge and Irma move, uh, you can meet at my house. I have a trailer and a truck there. Matthew's going to show up with his truck.
I believe we'll make it all in one trip. Uh, and it'll mostly be a kind of fellowship, but it's a good thing for us to come together and help each other. Uh, in this particular point in our ministry, there's not too much work for the number of people. It's more or less just about getting to hang out with your brothers. Amen? So at 3 o'clock, if you'd like to do that, be there, and uh, we're going to go to their apartment and help them move into their new eight is enough setting. <laughs> <laughs> Our church is building community, literally. Families are all joining in with each other and sharing responsibilities, and God is shaping their lives. Isn't it good to be a part of a family? Amen. 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 Uh, <coughs> Brother Fred, would you pray for us and close the service? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for the presence. We thank you for just so many things that you do for us. Be with us, Father, as we go out. Let us always turn to you and know that you are there. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, I love y'all. <laughs>